scorched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Get what he says next. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Does that sound familiar? Right? God essentially reiterates this promise to King David as well in 2 Samuel 7. And we're all quite familiar and comfortable with the idea of blessing. But right, in, within Western culture, right, often this idea of cursing is something that offends our sensibilities. It makes us a bit uncomfortable at the least. Yet as John Day explains, this is a normal part of servant-lord relationships within ancient Eastern times and the covenants they set up. He says, in response to a vassal pledging their covenant loyalty to a particular lord, that lord would promise to bless and protect them. On the flip side, if they broke allegiance to that lord, the wrath and vengeance of the lord would be directed at them instead. So the promise blessing as well as the cursing was directly tied to the covenant relationship. But as D.A. Carson points out, these covenant blessings and curses carry special significance not only for the covenant people but also for the crown in Israel as well. This is what he says. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the locus, or we could say the center of attention for the people of God, was a nation. Because the people of God constituted a nation, it was impossible to disassociate God's blessing on the people from the welfare of the nation. The advancement of God's purposes were directly tied to the survival of the nation. Israel's enemies were God's enemies. The destruction of the nation surrounding the promised land was understood, according to Scripture, to be God's judgment on those nations. By the same token, when the best of Israel's kings saw themselves surrounded by foes, they could not possibly think in merely military and political categories. The king was God's son. The king was God's vassal. His cause was just because it was God's. It was entirely right that the king should turn to God and plead his cause and cry for injustice. If justice was forthcoming, then under the structures established in the old covenant, that justice necessarily had national, political, and sometimes military overtones. All right, so let me summarize all that for us. When we read the imprecatory psalms, we need to read them in light of the biblical story and God's covenant promises. Right? When we look at the biblical story and we see God's promises, they help inform how we understand the imprecatory prayers. God's ultimate plan, as we said, was to fill the earth with his glory, to make it a temple kingdom. But all of that rested upon his fulfilling his covenant promises. And so it's these promises that God makes to, to, to David and to Israel and to Abraham that actually help to move the story along. And at the root of it all lies this promise to bless those that bless them and to curse those that curse them. So when we set that as our backdrop, what we begin to see is that all the prayers of the Psalms, even the imprecatory ones, can be boiled down to the psalmist calling upon God to fulfill his promises, his covenant promises, and to fulfill his kingdom purposes in the earth. 
Like, that's a long buildup. That's a lot. But right with that groundwork, we now are able to look at Psalm 109 together, right? It's our second point this morning, the psalm explained. Beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 109, this is what David writes. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David begins this psalm by asking God, to defend his cause, to speak up on his behalf. He asked the Lord not to be silent because his enemies have not been silent. Now, we don't have enough information here to know whether this is Saul or Absalom or Doeg or Ahithophel. We don't know who's David's talking about here. But what is clear is that David's enemy was somebody who was seeking to destroy his reputation in his life. And yet, if you look at verses 4 and 5, despite their words of hate, David has sought to overcome evil with good. He has personally committed himself to showing love to his enemies despite their repeated attacks. While his enemies have accused him, he has given himself to prayer. Psalms 35 gives us an even clearer picture of David's heart toward his enemies. He writes, They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft, but I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. See, David, David is not delighting in the affliction of his enemies. He's not a hateful or vindictive man. This is a man after God's own heart. So rather than taking vengeance into his own hands, he entrusts himself in prayer to the justice of God. But look at what he prays for, you might ask, right? Like that, that we got to pay attention to what he prays for indeed. Look at verse 6. Here's what it says. David prays, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children." May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. And let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may be cut off the memory of them from the earth. Wow. What do we do with all that? I think if we're going to grasp the logic of what David's praying for here, we need to be familiar with the law of just retribution, right? Which we might summarize as the punishment should fit the crime. Yahweh is a God of equity. And so it's this principle of justice 
that undergirds much of the Old Testament civil law that he hands down to his people. And we see it expressed really, really clearly in Leviticus 24, verses 19 through 22. It'll be up on the screen. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whatever Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. In other words, they re, should repay it back. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. For I am the Lord your God. And in fact, this is precisely why we see in Psalm 109, verse 16, David begins with the word for. Right, here's what he says in verse 16. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. So David is saying, Lord, since the enemy was set on accusing me and establishing my sin and guilt, let one rise up to accuse him and establish his sin and guilt. Since he showed no kindness, let none be shown to him. Since he mercilessly pursued the poor and needy to put them to death, let him be put to death and let his family be poor and needy. Since blessing others was so far from him, let blessing be far from him. Since he wore cursing others like a garment, let it indeed surround and cover him. What David is asking for here is that God apply his own righteous law of just retribution to the enemy. Right? Did you get that? David is asking God to apply his own righteous law of just retribution to the enemy. God has said, vengeance is mine, and David has left it in his hands. This is where I would also remind us of the biblical story and the covenant promises we've talked about already. As the representative of God and his people, David here is asking for God to cut off those who stand in opposition to him because ultimately they're standing in opposition to God and his people and his purposes. And let's not forget what God had promised to Abraham, Israel, and David, that he would bless those that blessed them and curse those that cursed them. David here is asking God to keep that promise. He's asking God to do what he said he would do, to do the very thing that is in accordance with his own word and character. That's the essence of impregatory prayer. And in verses 21 and following, we find the motivation for it. Here's the why. Verse 21 but you, O oh God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love, your faithful covenant love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. 
My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Again, we're not reading this psalm properly. If all we see here is a proud, vengeful man who's asking God to smite some random person who's not being nice to him. David here is posturing himself in humility and desperation before the Lord. Having committed himself to God and to loving his enemy, his body is literally wasting away. And so now he's calling for God to deliver him. And yet in spite of all this, it was not for his own name that he was ultimately concerned. It was for God's glory and reputation. For he says, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. He's asking God to keep his promises, to bless those who bless his people and curse those who curse his people because ultimately God's name is at stake in the fulfillment of those promises. And that's why David continues in verse 26 through 28. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. And in verse 30, with my mouth, I give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. Here's what David understands. His personal deliverance was ultimately a corporate worship matter. But if according to Jesus in Luke 24, 44, even the Psalms were written about Christ, what does our text specifically and the imprecatory prayers in general tell us about Jesus? Well, if you're familiar with your Bibles, a particular line of Psalm 108, excuse me, Psalm 109 may have stood out to you in this verse 8 where he says, may another take his office. This is a line that Peter picks up in Acts 1 when he's addressing the disciples about the need for the Scriptures to be fulfilled and their need to find one to replace Judas Iscariot who had portrayed Jesus. So there's an ultimate fulfillment of this in the life of Christ. But here it is. Both the first and the final Davidic king experienced hatred for their love. And yet, both entrusted themselves to the justice of God through prayer. And furthermore, and again, I'm going to borrow from Trevor Lawrence here. This is what he says. I love this. So helpful. The New Testament also paints Jesus as fulfillment of each of the major players in the imprecatory Psalms, right? You might just have thought that Jesus was the sufferer, right? As we have seen in Isaiah, in our Isaiah series. But no, You have the role of the petitioner who is suffering, prayerfully enacting God's justice in the world. The enemy who is the object of God's covenant curse. And you have God himself painted as the warrior king who will certainly bring justice in the world. 
And the New Testament authors actually use descriptions of each of these figures, of their characteristics, of their actions, and of their destinies in God's future to describe the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the Davidic sufferer, the one who receives the unjustified antagonism of the enemies of God. He is the human mediator of God's justice in the world, who as the royal priestly son of God will establish God's kingdom in the earth. He is the accursed enemy who is cast out of the community, crucified outside the gates. He is expelled from the land and from the land of the living, and he bears the covenant curse. But he is also the divine warrior king who is described as coming in fire and glory to do the work that the imprecatory psalms say that God will ultimately do. So if we are taking our cues from the New Testament, when we read and sing and pray the imprecatory psalms, we will actually hear in every part of them a witness to Jesus. Jesus is not just the prayer, but he is the sufferer and the imprecator. He is the mediator of judgment. He is the enemy who stands in place of God's enemies. And he, he's ultimately the divine judge who's going to come and make the earth the dwelling place of God with man. Right? That's our Jesus. In light of that, what a glorious picture of Christ is contained in the imprecatory Psalms. So do we conclude then, seeing Jesus in the imprecatory Psalms, do we conclude then that, as so many others have, who love the gospel, that all the imprecatory prayers have now been fulfilled and finalized in Jesus Christ? In other words, if Christ fully bore the just wrath of God and the curse for sin, offering grace and mercy to both Jews and Gentiles alike, what role, if any, do these imprecatory psalms have in the life of God's people today? To answer that question, we need to look at what the New Testament does with imprecatory psalms. That leads us to our final point this morning is the psalm maintained. Now, I think it's unfair for us to assume that imprecatory prayers are just a part of some inferior or Old Testament ethic Right, because we find them in the New Testament as well. For example, in Acts 8.20, Peter says to Simon the magician, may your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God or the Holy Spirit with money. A loose translation might be to hell with you and your money. Likewise, in Galatians 1.8, Paul says this about those who are troubling the church at Galatia and distorting the gospel. He says, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema is the Greek word, right? Which means devoted to destruction. Unless we conclude that the imprecatory expressions and prayers flow only from a heart still corrupted by sinful anger and bitterness, listen to the pleas of the fully glorified martyrs in Revelation 6. And this is this language here seems to come straight from Psalm 79. This is what they say, Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. Verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell 
on the earth. Even the glorified saints of heaven are praying imprecatory prayers. I was talking to some folks this morning already about this. And they brought up the point, and this is really the biggest challenge for us that remains. How do we reconcile the use of imprecatory prayers with Christ's command in Matthew 5 to love your enemies? Well, let's briefly look at that passage together in Matthew 5. Jesus says this in verse 38. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? There's the law of just retribution. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if, you would sue, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What I believe Jesus is articulating here is how his followers ought to respond, not to the enemies of God's people, who violently oppose his kingdom, but to the personal evil of personal enemies. When in the course of normal life we are justifiably or unjustifiably harassed, slandered, and abused by others, Christ calls us to show them the same love that we've been shown by our Heavenly Father when we were his enemies. He calls us to entrust ourselves and our enemies to the mercy of God. And we do that through prayer. So, if your boss seems to have it out for you at work and look for opportunities to get you written up or fired, or if the neighbor slanders you on the Facebook community page, or if a shady contractor runs off with your money leaving your kitchen reno only half done, or if someone cuts you off in traffic and then gives you the middle finger, or if you're sharing the gospel and someone spits in your face or calls the cops, you may have reason for a conversation, but there's no grounds for imprecatory prayers. Right? Those are not on the table. You are to live and to love as sons and daughters of a gracious father. In the video I was watching this past week about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East, Vicar Andrew White shares the horrific story of four Christian girls in ISIS. I'm just going to warn you, this is graphic. ISIS shows up at their home. They tell the girls, you say the words that you will follow Muhammad. The young girls, all under the age of 15, say to the soldiers, no, we love Yeshua. We have always loved Yeshua. We have always followed Yeshua. Yeshua has always been with us. The soldiers said, say the words we told you to say. The children replied, no, can't. The ISIS soldiers then chopped all their heads off. And the vicar asks, he poses the question, how do we respond to that? Indeed, how do we respond to that? One might say, well, we, we should pray for their murderers. Indeed, but what should we pray and how should we pray for them? 
Well, I believe Jesus answers that question for us, at least in part, in Luke 18 when he shares a parable about a widow. This is what we read in Luke 18.1. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, but because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now listen closely. And the Lord Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God is setting before us a picture here, just as in the imprecatory Psalms. He's giving us a model of what faithful prayer may look like. Like one in need, persistently crying out for justice, entrusting themselves to the judge of all. The whole point of the, Jesus sharing this parable with his disciples, the passage says, was so that they would persist in praying it as well. They would pr- not lose heart. Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? I tell you, he will give justice to them. In light of what we've already covered, consider freshly how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. He says, Our Father in heaven, let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. While the language might not be explicit here, in praying this, we are calling for God to vindicate his name by bringing out the culmination, by bringing about the culmination of his temple kingdom in the earth. This not only involves filling the earth with his glory, but it also involves removing from the earth and exacting just vengeance on all who oppose him. And in closing this morning, I want to leave us with several cautions and considerations as we seek to employ these types of prayers. One, the motive from precatory prayers ought always to be the glory of God. If our primary concern is for anything other than the reputation of God and his kingdom, then we have no grounds for such prayer. Two, God is able to get glory for himself through both the salvation and the destruction of his enemies. However, according to Ezekiel 33:11, the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, I would encourage us to capture that in how we pray. We might pray something like, Lord, would you be pleased to eliminate your enemies by saving them? But if not, would you eliminate them by any means necessary? Third, 
Imprecatory prayers are reserved, as we said, for God's enemies, not our personal enemies, especially given the indignation that politics can create. We need biblical discernment to recognize the difference between those who stand in utter opposition to God and His kingdom purposes and His people and those who do intentional violence to the vulnerable and then those on the other hand who are just seeking to accomplish good, e- good means but are, um, excuse me, good ends but are going about it the wrong way, right? We need discernment to be able to recognize the difference between those things because there is a significant difference. Fourthly, imprecatory prayers ought always to be accompanied by fear and trembling. When we call for the just vengeance of God to fall upon His enemies, we ought also to bear in mind that we were once the enemies of God, deserving of His wrath, His just judgment. The only thing that makes us to differ is the grace of God. Not only that, but imprecations involve real people with real families who experience real suffering, in some cases eternal suffering, apart from God. So we ought to utilize them soberly and cautiously. Fifthly, imprecatory prayers ought naturally to lead us to personal confession and repentance. We actually pause to reflect on the fact that God is opposed to all that is unholy and unclean, all that stands in the way of His temple kingdom expansion, we can't help but consider how our own thoughts and words and deeds have polluted the temple. Right? This ought to lead us to earnest and ongoing repentance as we look to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing. Six, while imprecatory prayers are certainly a repeated note in Scripture, they are not, they are not the dominant note we hear in Scripture. Our emphasis should be on blessing and not cursing. So if we find that the majority of our prayers involve imprecations or that none of them do, it's likely that we need to be adjusted by God's Word. Seventh, whenever we pray, we want to concentrate on speaking back to God what He has already said in His Word. Right? We want Him to do what He's already promised and committed to doing in the Scriptures. And that implies that we have to know what the Scripture teaches. And then finally, good litmus test for our imprecatory prayers is our comfort level praying them corporately, right? In union with and out of a concern for the body of Christ. If we are hesitant to do that, then we have good reason to question whether or not we should pray them at all. Christopher, if you could go ahead and come up I want us to end our time this morning by praying for the persecuted church around the world. And praying specifically that God would bring about justice for his oppressed people in three countries in particular. In Afghanistan, Somalia, in Nigeria in particular, Islamic extremist groups are aggressively persecuting Christians. They are filled, like these groups are filled with men of violence who love to shed blood. So, I shared earlier, these groups are enemies of the people of God and oppressors of the vulnerable, particularly women and children. It's routine practice for them to systematically hunt down and brutally kill Christians or to raid schools and homes 
especially Christian ones, to capture women and young girls to sell or keep them as sex slaves. In Afghanistan, the, the major Islamic extremist groups are the Taliban and ISIS. In Somalia, it's al-Shabaab. In Nigeria, it's Boko Haram. While Nigeria is considered to be a place of hostility to the gospel, Afghanistan and Somalia are actually considered restricted countries. They are number one and number three on the open doors list of the most dangerous places on earth to be a Christian. So how ought we to pray for our brothers and sisters in these difficult places? First, I believe we should pray that they would suffer well. Justice to elect.